Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Bill. Many of you would know me from the McLean site, but I know that already and wonderfully, there's some people here who go, who are you? Um, I'm one of the pastors in the broader Capital Pres network, and as, as for the time being, one church in three places, we are working hard to keep those connections and to help each other out. Now, speaking of connections, if this thing died out halfway across, make it the whole way. My arms were not long enough. <laughs> um, I'm excited to be out here with you all as we are worshiping together and as we're working our way through the book of Mark. So this is one of those weeks we're going to start our scripture text in Mark chapter 3 starting in verse 13. And a few of you, the auditor, accountant, detail types are going, wait a minute. You guys stopped last week at chapter 2 verse 17. You all are skipping some stuff. And you're right. Now, Probably a bigger set of us are like, um, no, I got my kids here. They all have their shoes on. They might even be on the right feet, and we've got them safely between the two of us. That's a win, and we're glad you're here too. You get different types who approach the world in different ways, but for everybody to be clear, we are sort of pressing fast forward. We're jumping over a little bit of material, and it's not something we love to do. And you may say, well, why are you jumping it? Are you guys hiding from the hard stuff? And if you've been here very long, you know that's not our pattern. We're not going to hide from the hard stuff. And in fact, even the passage we're going to work on today has some kind of hard stuff in it. Um, it's this paradoxical thing that gospels like Mark are big and unruly. And we need to both teach the word regularly, yet also declare the whole counsel of God, Old and New Testament, and not just Gospels, but Epistles, and Proverbs, and Psalms, and Histories. And so in an attempt to balance everything we're supposed to do, every once in a while with the Gospel of Mark, we're going to hit fast forward because we want to finish Mark at Easter. And so this is one of those weeks where we are just skipping forward a little bit. We have not skipped forward in the reading plan that we introduced that you may have been following. You've hopefully been looking at that we gave out at the beginning of the series. And if you go to the church's webpage, the sort of other resources piece of it does have things that fill in the places that we skip. So even though we're not going to look at every passage in our sermon series, we've tried to build our church's ministry model so that we get the entire gospel of Mark together. And today we're going to pick up starting in verse 13, chapter 3. So let's read together what the Lord says. Mark is writing, and he says, starting in verse 13, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boandrines, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. 
And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. He called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. He answered them, who are my mother and brothers And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Mighty and merciful Father, we pray you'd speak to us now through your word. We remember that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word, Lord, it lasts forever. So help us through your word to see Jesus and give us faith to follow him. We pray it in his name, him our savior. Amen. Amen. So this is a passage about acceptance and rejection. And so to step into it, let me ask you to actually step into a hard place in your memories for a second. Um, A painful set of memories, the times you felt forsaken and rejected and cast out. Unfortunately, it's all too common. It may be the loss of your community or your friend group or something else because of your political positions, as frankly, our country has hardened in our culture's approach. All sorts of people have been cast out of their friend groups because their politics weren't extreme enough on whichever side their friend group happens to be on. Far beyond that, and I think far more painful, Many have been cast out of their families for various positions, whether it's political or something entirely different. Or there's this uneasy peace we keep because we know if we said that, the relationship would fracture and shatter. Kids feel that way to parents. Parents feel that way to kids. I've got to tell you, after many years of pastoring now, families are just hard, like really, really hard. So what comes into your mind, or maybe better put, what happens in your heart when you hear the word family? You know, young or old, married, single, divorced. When you think of family, what goes on inside? Imagine there's a really broad spectrum. There's a real diversity from some wonderful things to some incredibly terrible things all wrapped up inside ourselves with that. Um, But I bet there are very few of us who, when I say family, go, oh, yeah, don't feel anything. Because wrapped up in our families are some of the greatest joys and warmest things out there, and probably some of our deepest wounds and our most profound regrets out there. We have this weird mixture of all those things when we think of family. Well, here's the really amazing thought for us. 
Jesus had trouble with his family. So if you're thinking, man, I came to church. I was looking for just a decent Sunday to get through the week and it was raining outside. Sure, it's like you brought that cold rain in here. Well, what a thought is it that our Lord and Savior himself had all sorts of difficulty with his family. That Jesus had to navigate terrible family relationships and all sorts of difficulty. Um, His family viewed him in this passage literally as insane, out of his mind. And when we see Jesus dealing with his family, it gives us, it can start to transform our understanding of our own lives, even our own families, both our biological families and our church family. So here's the point this morning. In, In short, Jesus was rejected so that you and I can be accepted. Jesus was rejected so you and I can be accepted. And that's really all we're going to look at that mor- this morning, those two points. So let's start for the first of them, that Jesus was rejected. Our Lord was rejected by his family as deluded and by the religious leaders of a day as a deceiver. So let's set the stage. In the part of chapter three we were skipping over, things are starting to get on a roll. Jesus is drawing larger and larger and larger crowds. Um, He's continuing to astonish people and amaze people. He's healing more and more people. Demons are bowing down and acknowledging that they are no match for him because he is the son of God. So many people are flocking to him that the crowd surge is so strong. He has to get in a boat to avoid being crushed. Everything seems to be booming, but surprisingly, so is the opposition. And if you look at the end of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3, the opposition's coming from a surprising place. It's not coming from the Romans, the political authorities of the time. It's not coming from the culture. It's actually coming from the religious people. It's coming from the people who say they follow God. They're the opposition to Jesus. Verse 6 of this chapter tells us that the religious leaders are on a mission now to destroy Jesus. That'd be so hard, wouldn't it? To have your entire church, your entire faith, your entire culture just turn against you? But then it gets even worse. Let's look at our passage starting in verse 13. Crowds are literally mobbing Jesus and almost crushing him. And Jesus has this pattern going on. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. He does all sorts of amazing things. He grabs a huge crowd together and then he disappears. He just leaves. He pieces out. And he does it again. These huge crowds are flocking to him. And so then he just heads on up a mountain somewhere. But he takes a few people with him. He takes 12 folks who are going to be his apostles. And the text says it means two things. They're going to be with Jesus and they're going to be sent by Jesus to do the work of proclaiming the good news that he's come to bring. And then verse 20 says, he went home and buckle up because here it goes again. The crowd gathers so many they could not even eat. Don't you love that detail? They're so busy in ministry, they don't even have time to grab a bite. And then cue, on cue, Jesus' family. They've made about a 20-mile trek from Nazareth, now over here, where Jesus is now living. And what happens when the family shows up? You haven't seen them for a long time. You know, after you get the initial greeting, you get kind of into reminiscent mode. Hey, Jesus, you remember that time mom and dad forgot to pick you up? You know, you were left at the temple for like three days because mom and dad didn't do their job. You remember how freaked out everybody was and they found you hanging out with all the temple leaders and telling them about things? Wasn't that cool? Or, hey, Jesus, you remember that weird way you like, 
you had the most unique coming to a family that any human being has ever had in history. Remember that weird way you joined our family? But no, that's not what you get here. What do you get when it's brothers and sisters and mothers show up? Well, what you get is you're crazy. You have lost it. It, The text says they came to look at the word to seize him. This guy, what are they thinking where they're going... He's, he's, he's kind of gone over the edge. You know, we always thought he was a little weird. We always thought he was kind of out there. We always thought that something might go wrong, but we never dreamed it was going to be this bad. That he was going to have these delusions of grandeur, that he was going to, you know, this guy is saying things that make us realize he thinks he's God. We've got to stage an intervention right now before this gets any worse and before he destroys his own life and embarrasses the family. Some of you know what this is like, don't you? Maybe your family thinks you are deluded for believing in Jesus. And with Thanksgiving right around the corner, you're already gearing up for them telling you when you go home. Or maybe your friends think you're sort of out of your mind for not doing everything that they're doing because you're a Christian. And with homecoming season underway, that pressure is about to build up too. And of course, the Christians all around the world places like Indonesia that we prayed for today, who are suffering, rejected, threatened by their families, even in some cases murdered by their families because they follow Jesus. That rejection hurts and it's lonely, but we shouldn't be caught off guard by it. We should take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows that kind of rejection personally. You have family issues, so did our Savior. But Jesus isn't only rejected by his family, He's rejected by the leaders of his people, the leaders of the larger religious and ethnic family, if you can put it that way. Look down at verse 22. The scribes who come out of Jerusalem are saying, he's possessed by Elzebul, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, you need to feel this up with me a little bit. Up until now, there's already been some whispering, a little whisper campaign that Jesus is blaspheming. He's been accused of breaking the Sabbath. But D.C. lawyer friends, this is now like the grand jury has convened. People come down from Jerusalem and there's a public accusation. They say that Jesus is actually possessed, that he is under the control of Satan, the great father and deceiver of lies. And with a public charge that he is satanic, how does Jesus answer it? I love how Jesus answers. He says, okay, guys, story time. Come on over here. And he tells them a little story. It's obviously a story that's told to make a point. Well, what's the point? Um, By the way, if you recognize the image in this story, it's because Abraham Lincoln, as many people know, picked up this very parable to describe the United States as it dealt with the evils of slavery. But Jesus is talking about Satan's divided house. And he says, listen, folks, grand, grand jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Let's work this through. If Satan is really the one who's behind my exorcisms, then that means Satan is dividing his own house. Well, why would he do that? Why would Satan launch a civil war against himself and then give me all the credit? Jesus goes, guys, that dog doesn't hunt just on its own logic. It wouldn't work that way. And he goes on. He says, let me tell you what's really going on here. 
you want to know what's really behind all this, this is what it is. If you want to go into a strong man's house and wreck shop, take all his stuff, he goes, the very first thing you're going to have to do is tie up that strong man. The only way you can take all of somebody's stuff is if you have sort of incapacitated him. Well, remember we're talking about people who have demons that are being cast out. Satan has taken those people and Jesus has said, I'm taking them back. And he says, the only way that's possibly going to work, y'all, is if I'm stronger than Satan. If, in other words, something fundamentally different has happened and I'm here and I have tied up the devil and I'm taking away what had been his. And it's that context that really helps us understand this funny verse that seems to happen in verse 29. Some of you have probably been staring at verse 29 since it got read going, wait, what's with that? Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but's guilty of an eternal sin. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, well, if there is such a thing as an unforgivable sin out there, I'd like to know what it is. Because I think right at the top of my list of don't do's, that one just got to the top, right? What is it? Well, pay attention to what Jesus says here because he tells us what it is. He says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Of course, you say, well, that doesn't help me. What's that mean? Here's what it is. It's doing exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing in this passage, calling the Holy Spirit a liar when the Holy Spirit testifies about who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit's role is to point us to Jesus, the true King and the promised Messiah. And if instead of following that, we conclude that Jesus can't be trusted, we're cutting ourselves off from the mercy and forgiveness of God. So, One theologian puts it this way. He says, the sin that can never be forgiven is this, not because it's too big for God to forgive, but because its very nature is turning our back on the forgiveness God offers us. So let me be incredibly clear here. The unforgivable sin is not suicide, as some people have suggested through history. It is not adultery. It is not murder. It's not having doubts about your faith or questions about God. In fact, R.C. Sproul, another famous theologian, commented once, he said, the very fact that you might worry that you might commit this sin is pretty good evidence you haven't. The sin spoken here is a conscious, malicious, willful rejection of the ministry of Jesus, turning our back on what the Holy Spirit says about forgiveness And not being willing to receive it from our Lord. Mark is warning every one of us not to reject Jesus as deluded or deceived, but to believe what the Holy Spirit says in God's word, that Jesus is the Messiah who entered history, who forgives sin, who's our only hope. And that leads to the second key point. Jesus was rejected. Why? So that we could be accepted. Kids, skeptics, everyone, here is the message of Christianity. Here's the gospel, the good news. Jesus was rejected so you and I could be accepted. As those who've been accepted, we have been forgiven and we have been made family. The verse that should take our breath away isn't verse 29, it's verse 28. Truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they might utter. Did you come in here this morning maybe thinking that God wants nothing to do with you because of what you've done? Or did you roll in thinking, yeah, but I blew it again? 
Or, man, I've made such a mess of my life, I'd have to get that thing cleaned up before I could come back to Jesus. Well, those are all lies. Forgiveness is available to you and to me right now, this morning, this moment. How? By remembering that Jesus has the authority to grant forgiveness of sins. Here's why. On the cross, he wasn't just rejected by his earthly family, by his ethnic group. On the cross, he had his eternal family, God the Father, turn away from him. On the cross, Jesus took the judgment of God and was cut off from him. He stood in that place for us. God the Father treated Jesus as if all these accusations were true. Now, God the Father knows, in fact, none of them are true. Yet, he chose to treat Jesus as if they were all true so that we, of whom they are all true, would be forgiven. And even more, Jesus willingly went on the cross, him also knowing they weren't true, to let God the Father treat him that way. Why? He did it for you. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it for us. Because the truth is, you and I, all of us, do deserve the punishments that Jesus took. Some of us literally, with blasphemies against God, all of us metaphorically, we have in common this. When it comes really down to it, we treat ourselves as God. Instead of recognizing God as God, we say, I'll be the one who makes the calls. I'll be the one who takes care of myself. I'll be the own, my own moral compass. Every one of us does this, whether metaphorically or literally or both. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It can be forgiven because catch something amazing here. This story doesn't end in a cross and a tomb. Jesus goes from the cross to the tomb and then there he defeats death and rises in a full and final way. The resurrection shows for sure to all the world that the world's great enemy, Satan himself, his house has truly been plundered. Because Jesus, the stronger man, has come and as king has saved every one of us from judgment and death. But not only does Jesus accept us and save us and forgive us, he makes us family. Verse 31, Mark tells us a second interaction about the family here, right? This time they come back and they're outside and they send word in and say, we want to talk to him. Now that's a big deal, probably bigger than we may know. Because in this culture, the culture of the Bible, family was by far the most strong bond out there. Nobody came between you and your family. So when Jesus looks around the room and says, verse 33, it's why it's such a remarkable response. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around those people sitting around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Forever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Think about that. Jesus is looking around that room and announcing for everyone there that that is his family. Those are his people that nobody comes between him and his family. And he's not just looking around that room saying it. He's looking around this room and he's saying the same thing. Whoever does the will of God. That's whoever receives Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. That person is Jesus' family. Think of the way he's been treating even the disciples. He's given them nicknames. That's what you do for the people you love. Peter, I'm going to call you a rock. James and John, you guys are going to be the sons of thunder. Because this is what a family does. They get to love each other. They get to know each other. 
do you guys realize that Jesus feels this way about you? That he looks at you and wants to give you a nickname and say, come here. You're my family and you're never not going to be. That he has brought you in and loves you that much. And look at what this does. Let me show you one more thing. Take a tour near the end of your Bible if you've got it. Find a big book called Hebrews and nestled next to it, you find a little book called James. Named after James for its author. You know who that is? He was a leader of the early church. You know who else he was? Brother of Jesus. One of those who was thinking that Jesus is delusional and lost his sanity, who came to seize him. But now on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, he knew. Realize that even Jesus' mother and brother and sisters, they hadn't committed that unforgivable sin either. They, in the end, realized who Jesus really was. And they were now his disciples. If you go to that book of James, look how he starts it in, book, in verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now look back at Mark 3. What does Jesus say at the end? He looks around at all those people in verse 34 and 35 and says, These are my mother and my brothers. Do you realize what's happened by the end of the Bible? Jesus' family, his earthly brothers and sisters, now has become not just that, but united in the gospel, they've become also his eternal family. They become his eternal brothers and sisters, his true family. They didn't yet, in Mark 3, count as his eternal family, but by the end of the Bible, they would. With faith in Jesus, our Savior's messed up human family got restored. And it got unified. And that means it can be true of yours and mine too. That knowing Jesus can actually transform our families here and now. It's, the, it's honestly only when we're finally aware of who we all are. Parent or child, aunt, uncle, grandparent. That before Jesus we are all brothers and sisters united in one family. That we are the ones who have received his grace. That we are the ones he has brought together into an eternal family relationship. It's exactly that that lets us work on our stuff here and now. Because when we have the security of knowing we will never be cast out of that family, that we're free to do the hard work of living together the way we ought. It's right when you and I realize that rejection is no longer on the table, that we have been accepted by the one who made the stars, that it gives us freedom to live with grace and in grace for each other. In our human families, and might I add, in our church family. You realize it makes us family. We often start our worship services, we'll say, good morning, church family. When it comes to the Lord of all the earth, you are not an afterthought. You are not an annoyance. You are a daughter. You are a son forever. And so is everybody else here. And that means we are forever united, one with each other. So capital Prez, Reston, what will family life be like? Let's pray. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray to you that the truths of the gospel will be real to us. Maybe in ways they've never been before. That you will lead us and teach us and convict us that your glory would abound through all this earth, that your name would be praised forever. And in you having done that for us, that we would honor Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.